0: Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open to Luke chapter two. You might say, "Well, that's kind of the familiar Christmas story." It is, but what we're finding out that it's not so familiar. Luke chapter two, verse eight to twelve. Uh, LifeWay Research recently, just last week, uh, reported on a study that they did, um, I think back in September, maybe it was October, and um, they found out that only 22% of Americans polled uh, felt like they could retell the Christmas story with any sense of accuracy from memory. Now, I think that I would hope that we would be a little bit higher than 22% here. I would hope that, that you'd be so familiar with this hope of the gospel of this story that we find there in Luke, and we find in, in various forms in the other gospels, but especially there in Luke, that, that you would be able to tell that story, and that you would be able to do so with both uh, a historical accuracy, but even more so with a theological accuracy. And so this morning, as we begin to see this, that, that we really live in a world that. Is not that familiar with it. I I think that everybody we would just assume is familiar with it. I've probably never been so shocked in ministry than several years ago. It's probably going back 15, 20 years now. And you're going to think that I'm I'm making this up. And I I promise you, pastors do make up a lot of their stories. Uh, they just, you know, because it fits. But this is one that's not made up. And and I, I really don't make up stories. (laughs) But this is one that, uh, This lady came and and she was sincere in her desire to know more about Christ and everything. And we were talking just a little bit. And she said, now Christmas, now which one was where he was born and which one is where he died? And you would have thought that just from the culture that we have. You would think, if nothing else, if you just visited the store and saw all the the commercialization of uh, the coming of Christ and the birth of Christ, that you would know that. Folks, we live in a world that is unfamiliar with this story. We live in a world that even more is unfamiliar with the significance of this story. They found out in this poll that uh, it was given from people 18 to 65, from all different backgrounds. 91% said that they celebrated christmas and yet only a few could really verbalize that Uh, one of the things that was really interesting to to me and maybe you wouldn't have found it to be so interesting is that uh, within this article they talked about evangelical beliefs and at the bottom they footnoted what how life we research define evangelical beliefs isn't that strange that in a world that that's probably a common term to you, uh, what an evangelical is, what, a, what somebody that would have that belief is? And yet they had to define it because more and more we're seeing that words are kind of changed. And over history, all of a sudden the world takes on a word that we're familiar with, maybe even in a theological context, in a biblical context, and then they change it. And they define evangelical beliefs as Bible as the highest authority for one's belief, Sins being removed solely by Christ and his death and the cross and salvation of placing trust in the work of Christ and Christ alone. I would hope that everybody here this morning, uh, and unless you're a guest and you just walked in, but if you're familiar here, that this is something that you'd be familiar with, whether that is personal to you or not, but that you'd at least be familiar with it because you would hear it week after week after week. This is the gospel. This is our only hope. And yet we live in a culture and we live in a world where people take words and, and they kind of change them, even like Christian or believer. Do you know what? how the Bible defines a Christian or believer? I mean, I used to be able to go to somebody and, and say, uh, if they were asking about a Christian counselor, and, and I would be able to take that word counselor, and I would be able to take that word Christian, and, and I would kind of say, okay, here's some solid people that call themselves counselors. They're Christian, and this is the foundation of what they do. And, and, folks, I am sorry to say that we live in a world now where just because it says Christian counseling, and they may even have a fish out there, that doesn't mean that they're going from the Bible. And I don't say that it's a critical thing. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I'm just saying we can't take the, just this word Christian even that to you and I would mean one thing, and that the world would interpret it in that same way. So what does the Bible say about who is a Christian? Uh, theologically, we have one answer, and it's for those whose eyes have been opened by the very Spirit of God so that we could see our sin and the provision of a Savior, and we put our trust in that Christ, in Christ alone. And so we would know that. But, you know, as the Bible begins to describe the Christian, it does so in two ways. Two ways, guys. By position and by possession. By position and by possession. When the New Testament talks about believers, Christians, number one, it is first and foremost by position in Christ. That term is used by Paul himself 162 times in various forms to be in Christ. This is our position. And this is the only way that we have salvation is because now, because the work of Christ, that we are in Christ. So one of the definitions that comes out about, what does the Bible say about Christianity? Who is a Christian? It would be our position. We are in Christ. The most familiar term in the New Testament describing who we are. The other one is a possession. And the possession is more of what we have. Would anybody guess what the the number one description of what we possess would be used in the Bible to describe a Christian? Joy. Very good. Now, you may have had a little bit of a hint this morning, uh, but this is essential. This is fundamental. This is why we're going to spend the next three weeks because the number one term used besides in Christ, our position of what our possession is, is that we have this joy. It's used 142 uh, 142 times, and um, a lot of those times it's used by the actual word that we would have translated joy. The other uh, term that's very similar there that's used is rejoice. And and the Bible kind of uses those interchangeably. And so this is the action that comes out of, this is our possession that we have because of Christ Jesus. Now here's the question. Does joy describe you? Did it describe your yesterday? Did it describe your last week? Not, not your happiness. I, I asked a couple of the elders this morning, to, should I go there? And I, I'm going to go there, Andy, so I'm sorry. Okay, uh, Happiness is fickle. Yesterday morning, this time, go dogs. This morning... All of a sudden, that's almost an offense. It's almost a stab. It's almost, you know, this bitterness. Happiness, guys, is fleeting. It is fickle. We'll, We'll talk more about that. But joy, this foundational joy, this description that the New Testament uses to describe who we are in Christ is that we're a joyous people. And so is that really obvious? Because I am in Christ... It's this joy just emanating out of it. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be happy all the time, that we're just always skipping, folks. There are a lot of times in life that we're just not going to skip. And yet, listen to what the Bible says. This joy, this foundational joy, this possession of joy, doesn't leave us just because circumstances are difficult. This isn't to say that there's not other descriptions that are accurate and valid. But if you want to see the two things that the New Testament uses to describe who a Christian is, we are in Christ and we are a joyous people. I mean, there's other times and other descriptors. I mean, Jesus Christ himself said when he gave the commandment, the new commandment to, to love one another, what did he say in John thirteen thirty five? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's not just joy. He said, okay, you're going to love one another. This is going to be a characteristic that you're going to have in your life if I live in your heart, if if I possess you, if I'm there and I'm the foundation of your life. So we're not saying joy is isolated, but it certainly is the most mentioned. So while there's other valid descriptions found in the Bible, in Christ, joy and rejoicing are these predominant ones that... The Bible uses to describe what a Christian is. In fact, we see this connection between Christ and the joy in the very proclamation of the coming of Christ. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Luke chapter 2. Verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. At the very coming, at the very incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, we see this connection between Christ, what Christ will do and what Christ then begins to give us in our life, what He brings into our life. And the connection here that we see even from the very beginning is this joy. Didn't just talk about happy and good times are here and hey, administrations are changing and under this present this is going to happen under the old. No, it's not about all these temporary things that can happen that give us either good feelings or bad feelings. No, He says there's going to be something foundational about God clothing himself in flesh and coming and dwelling among you. This baby, this, this coming, the this Savior, is God's answer to redeem sinful man. And not only would he become our source of salvation, but our source of joy. I ask you the question this morning, is he your source of joy? That's a really penetrating question if we really honestly evaluate our lives. And so I ask myself that is this your source of joy? And I'll just be honest with you. As i tried to be very honest with myself, I found myself pretty concerned with things that make me happy. Now, some people say that happiness and joy is the same thing. I kind of make a difference there. I think there's some scholars out there that, that kind of run those two words together. But I think many could make a biblical case that these are, at least in a cultural understanding, different, in a human understanding, different. So what is biblical joy? How is it different from just being happy? Is joy just happiness on steroids? Is it just like this extreme level? Or really, are they characteristically different? Now, I'll tell you that people have two different opinions on that. My opinion is that they are kind of very different because of the orientation and the foundation by which they come. When most people talk about being happy, we are putting our minds and our thoughts on circumstances. We're talking about if our team won. We're talking about if we had what we wanted for dinner and it was a really good meal. We're talking about good things happening in our lives that make us happy. And, and so that's I, I want you to know that there's nothing wrong with that. It's an emotion that God has given us. There's nothing inherently evil about happiness. But I do think it's quite different from biblical joy. Because biblical joy is not built upon circumstances, but about who we are and the foundation by which we live. Again, our position In Christ, and our possession that we have because of him, we have this capability, this capacity for joy that goes beyond the circumstances. Makes our lives totally different. Can somebody who doesn't know Christ be happy? Yes. Can somebody who knows Christ be unhappy? Yes. And yet I really believe that when we get down to biblical joy, that it's what I said before. Until we really connect this With this, and do we have an understanding that has the full connection of what God has done to redeem us in in our sinfulness? And when we see that He clothed Himself in flesh and He dwelt among us, He led a perfect life, and then He was willing to die for us to redeem us to holy God. This is where our joy comes from. It is a position, and I do believe biblically that it's a possession that we have. I mean, I'd rather be happy than unhappy any votes for that and yet have you found yourself even in times when you've tried to be happy that you couldn't quite grasp it that somehow it was like trying to hold on to water have you ever tried to hold on to water yeah you know, yeah your hands wet but you know have you tried to hold a cup of water it's kind of almost impossible your your hand can get wet and sometimes folks that's how we are in this world that we can have some happiness and yet it's so fleeting And it is so fickle. Not the same as joy. I don't believe that God ever wanted us to substitute happiness for joy. See, happiness can, as I said before, be pretty moody. It comes and it goes in seconds. It can change day by day. And here's the amazing thing about happiness. Have you ever been in this position that what made you happy yesterday didn't make you happy today? Isn't that an amazing thing? that you can get something, you can do something, you can experience something one day, and I man, this has made me so happy. And the next day, it's like, okay, move on to the next chapter. So it's not just that happiness is fickle. Guess what? We're pretty fickle. And so God doesn't give us something that it just changes with the wind, that just kind of is bright one day and then really kind of, you know, not so bright the next day. What God has provided for us in Christ Jesus is a joy that is foundational in its nature. The great joy that God announces Luke 2.10 and 11 is not something that is temporary. Look what he says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior. And how does he describe the Savior. Christ the Lord. Let's break those down just a little bit. The word Christ there is not really a name. It's a title. Messiah, anointed, chosen one. So we can call Christ, Christ, and we know who we're identifying by that. But but in actuality, it's not a name as much as it is a title. See the word Lord there? He's Christ the Lord. That's a position declaring that he is God. Now, Now, I want to ask you, Christ, that is his title, Lord, that is his position. Does that ever change? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But even along with that, Christ will, all, Jesus will always be Christ, and, and Jesus will always be Lord. And it's not dependent on my understanding. It's not even dependent upon my participation in that. I can reject that. Somebody can say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Does that negate that he is the Christ and that he is the Lord? So these things are, they're stable, they're foundational. These don't shift with cultures. They don't shift with redefining words and a redefining culture. This is the solid rock. This is the solid foundation that God says, build your life on these truths. One of my favorite parables because it's just so intentional It's the parable where the winds come, the storms come. One man built his house upon the sand, one upon the rock. And the, 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 the parable goes to great length to describe both of the storms exactly the same. So somebody didn't get a little storm and somebody else got a big hurricane. Okay, Somebody didn't get like winds, five mile an hour winds, and somebody else got a hurricane force. No, the same winds, same storms came. And yet one house fell and one stood. What was the difference? What was the point of the parable? It was built on a foundation. Instead of shifting sands, that is redefining what happiness is and, and even our own redefining of what happiness is, that we would be able to have a joy that is foundational. Does that make sense? Would you agree this morning that you are prone to lean toward happiness on an everyday basis. Would you admit this morning that there's a part of you in the flesh, just this fallen nature that we still have to contend with, that is not only satisfied with some things that are happy, but that we actually do redefine and change what makes us happy. We need something foundational. When the storms of life come, or the sunshine comes, we need something that is foundational. And this is really one of the main differences between joy and happiness. I don't believe that one is godly and one is evil. I don't believe that one is Christian and one is non-Christian. Folks, I don't see anything inherently wrong with happiness. I just see it as very inferior to joy, because it's temporary. I mean, you are gracious. Y'all sent Carly and I to the World Series and my team won that day. And I was happy. I would almost say that there was biblical joy. But I'm not gonna go I'm not, not trying to be irreverent there, but but there was happiness. But as we were walking back to the hotel that night, I said, you know, my goodness, you know, how gracious the church was to, to provide for this for us. But I said, Can you imagine sitting there if it would have been seven nothing? One of those games that was seven nothing, the Astros winning. I said the whole time you're, you know, all of a sudden your feelings, your emotions go from this high. Hey, we're in this experience. We're at the World Series. And all of a sudden you're sitting there enduring, enduring a seven to nothing game. That wasn't our situation. I'm thankful for that. But doesn't that kind of describe our life guys in reality? That when we lean toward happiness over foundational joy, when we lean toward things that even we redefine or the world redefines for us or that are beyond our control, that all of a sudden we really do put a lot of motion. We put a lot of value into if our team won or not. I, mean, I love college football. Okay, This isn't a sermon against college football. But but do you see how far your emotions can go from top to bottom? Just over a ball game? Inherently, how was your life changed because of a ball game yesterday? I may not want to know the answer to that. (laughs) Man, big time. (laughs) I mean, in one way, remember when you throw a rock into a pond and, and all of a sudden the ripples go out. I mean, how do the ripples really affect you on a daily basis? Besides what you allow there, is there really a source of joy even if they would have won that game, uh, UGA would have won that game in a slaughter? There'd be great happiness for many that are dog fans. But it would have been fleeting if they lose the next game. Uh, All of a sudden we begin to see that That we are vulnerable to this. And I think one of the things that we begin to see in this proclamation in Luke is that God says, look, I'm going to give you something that is foundational. So that your very lives and your very emotions are not just kind of being cast with the wind left and right. That on bright sunny days you feel just overjoyed or over, you know, happy or whatever it might be. And then on the other days that you're just at this pit of despair. see happiness is fleeting it's fickle we're fickle and what God has God given us biblical joy is rooted in God's purpose and God's provision if you're going to take any notes this morning whatsoever i would write that down i think that's really important that biblical joy as we start to define that how do we define biblical joy That it is rooted in God's purpose and in God's provision. Perhaps the great example to me of that in the Bible is uh, the description of Christ facing the cross. I don't think that we could make a biblical case that Christ was happy, if you want to use that human emotion, about going to the cross. I think that we could make a great case that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that while he is very much desiring over all things to do the will of God, he actually prays. But there's another way, God, you provide this way. And we see this very human part of Christ there and this kind of struggle back and forth. And yet ultimately, what does he what serves as his foundation? God's purpose, and that he was the provision. To the point where the author of Hebrews could say it this way. Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith look what it says who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross was he happy about going to the cross in your estimation did he have joy in the provision that he was the provision and the purposes of God let us learn let us learn of this guys let this be the foundation of our lives and lies where happiness goes left and right and all over the place. Let us learn that there's joy in the purpose of God and the provision of God. Ultimately, that's theologically, that's where we talked about our position. We are in Christ. Is that solid because of the, the finished work of Christ? Yes. It's solid. It's not developing. It's done, it. Is finished. And so this is our position. Now is this our possession? We have this ability to have joy in the finished work of Christ. We have the, the ability to have joy that no matter what comes, the shortness of life come into our lives, that we have the ability to truly have this foundation. Now that's the big question for us. The provision is there. The angels announced, man, joy is coming. This, this Christ This Lord is going to be the foundation of all your joy. Why is this so important? Let's go back and so that we can keep things in context. Let's read verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Let's set up, you know, we just read verse 2, but the application really is understood best when we read verse 1 with it. As we always say, let's read the context. Look what it says in verse 1. Therefore, since we, he's writing to believers, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, go back and read chapter 11, it talks about all these people of great, great faith, Abraham and all these other Hall of Fame faith members. He says, because we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Are you in a race? Is it a race of endurance? Does it seem like the finish line is moving farther and farther away? See, that's the context of verse 2. It points to us and says you're in a race. A race is kind of a test race is there's something to be done by a race, and that is that you want to finish the the finish line, right? That's kind of the whole objective there. And so let's take this. You're in this race. It's a spiritual race of sorts, and and you're running. And he says, run with endurance so that you can finish this race. Now verse 2 makes a lot of sense. Looking for Jesus, looking at Jesus. Keeping our eyes fixed on him, the founder and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we run this race? We look at the provision of Christ. This is biblical joy. Unspeakable joy. The question, do you have this joy? If you're a Christian here this morning, that is that you truly have understood your own sinfulness. And you understand that there's only one provision that God has made for that sinfulness. And that is that you would trust his perfect son, that he clothed himself in flesh, and that he came and he dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, and then lovingly, gracefully, mercifully, amazingly died on the cross for our sins. Second Corinthians 5.21, took all of our sins... And they were cast upon him and all of his rightness, all of his righteousness imputed to us. This great exchange. And this is our hope. And this is the source of joy. Understand your joy, biblical joy, will come from two things. That is your position, because it's in Christ. And now our trust in that provision on a daily basis that possession. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I I don't know that I really am living in joy. My happiness kind of goes up and down and all over the place. But I really want this joy. How how do we get this? Guys, there is no secret formula, far be it from us to try to make Christianity a formula. It's all about the person. It's all about connecting what God did in this gracious gift of giving His Son and, and then this gracious gift that He would die for us and, and then just trusting God for that provision for our life. Well, That sounds kind of simple. Yeah, childlike faith is the source of this joy. And yet, how many times do you let adult thinking kind of pivot you from... Joy to happiness. I don't know if I've ever been so happy than when my grandchildren have been born. The fourth one. That was happiness. Was that joy? Yes, joy in the sense, I, I can really extend it over there because I see the provision. The, the word that God gave me when our first grandchild was born was Legacy. And it didn't mean like, okay, now there's going to be an inheritance. Now there's somebody to carry on the name because she wasn't going to carry on the name. A sense a spiritual legacy that the hope of the gospel goes on to generation to generation. So there was a there was some joy there. I could see that in spiritual life because that was from God. That wasn't of my own making. But guys, I was ecstatic. I was happy. Carly and I absolutely love being grandparents. But what I want to offer to my grandkids is joy, unspeakable joy, that they would make this connection, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That they would have this foundation for their life. Because the world that I see coming for them, lest the second advent happen, is really not a better world. (laughs) I don't know what news you're watching. Well, I don't really watch the news because that's pretty discouraging. But there's really not a whole bunch of indication that all of a sudden, that we're going to come together and we're just going to find all kinds of incredible happiness in the things of man. So what is my hope for my grandchildren and for their children and for their children? Joy, unspeakable joy. Because he will always be Christ and he will always be Lord. This is our legacy. This is our hope. And nothing can change that for our children, our grandchildren, or their children. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much. Father, you know how much I love Christmas. I, I love this story. But Father, I love even more that it's a true story. Father, I love even more that it is a life-changing story. And Father, I love it the most because it changed my life. And so, Father, I thank you today. A, a man who, who would value much happiness... That you're transforming the way that I think and by the exposure by your spirit and by your word. And I thank you for this promise of a joy that Father does not go along with the conditions of my life that is foundational and true that my position in Christ Jesus will never change because of what he has done. And so now Father, I, I pray more and more and more. Give me not just an appreciation of biblical joy, but Father, an understanding, a grasp, and Father, that I would be a conduit of this joy. And I pray that for us as a congregation. I pray that for these as individuals. And Father, I pray even this morning, Father, for somebody who says, Yeah, I just don't have this joy. That Father, you'd give them a boldness to come and share with myself or, or someone else, so that more and more we could just turn them back to the hope. That was given when that angel proclaimed to the shepherds. I bring you t- tidings of great joy. Thank you, Father, for the provision of Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. We love you and we thank you, Father, as we pray all these things in the hope and the joy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.